you decide. Looking to do a larger project? We have home equity loans with new lower rates or a line of credit that allows the flexibility of check writing. Give us a call, stop in, or visit us at granitehills.org to find out how you can make your remodeling dreams come true. Granite Hills Credit Union is an equal housing lender and is federally insured by the NCUA. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Condi. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. A little chillier out there today than it was yesterday, certainly the day before, too. Thanks for spending part of your morning with us. Coming up on the program this morning, in about an hour, we're going to chat with Chris Robertson. He is with the Family Center of Washington County. And he uh, is going to tell us about some programs coming up, uh, some parenting programs coming up in particular. By the way, you might remember Chris was the guy who won the first laptop that we uh, gave away on the program. I think we're looking at maybe six years ago here, something like that. So I was in contact with Chris, uh, asking him to get some information about lining up our interview today. That computer still works. It's unbelievable. I think I'm on probably my third or fourth computer since he won that. So we're going to find out what, you know, maybe we should interview Chris this morning and find out what the trick is to keeping a uh, Apple computer going. All right. Uh, we're going to learn about leadership uh, right now. And uh, let me give you the phone numbers first. Always helpful on a call-in program. Give us a jingle at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And you can also reach us on our toll-free lines at 877 877- Two nine one eight two five five. We uh, go down to uh, Beantown. Joining us live on the line this morning is Dean Williams, who teaches at the Harvard, uh, the uh, Kennedy School, which is affiliated with Harvard University, the Kennedy School of Government. He's also the uh, author of a number of books. His most recent one, "Leadership for a Fractured World," and wow. This guy has done some serious traveling and some serious foreign government consulting. Thank you for joining us, Dean. How are you this morning? Yeah, very good, Mark. Thank you very much. Well, well, I want to talk about your travels here in a little bit, too. I mean, you've done some work with people in Australia, Madagascar. I mean, wow. Um, But first, Mm. uh, let's talk a little bit about just this concept of leadership. Can you tell me what is leadership? What are the qualities that make an effective leader? Yeah, it's a good uh, question, and it's perhaps the most fundamental question that we need to be addressing. And I think the traditional ways of thinking about leadership are wrong. The traditional way kind of focuses on a big man, uh, what I call big man leadership, and that also includes women, but it's traditionally been men, and uh, on prominence, dominance, and what I call tribalizing, which is about advancing the interests of your own group at the expense of others. And... uh, It's actually a preoccupation with authority, and we mistake that for leadership. And I look at leadership as about being the capacity to mobilize people to face reality, face tough problems that they generally do not want to face. And the traditional notion just looks at leadership as being able to achieve a goal. But uh, in my mind, that perpetuates the problems. Leadership, I see, is an activity of mobilizing people to deal with very tough challenges that uh, they have trouble dealing with. How do we get this myth solidified that leadership's this top-down thing that you just described? 
Oh, it's very primal, very ancient. Uh, the word leadership uh, goes back a couple of thousand years, and it emerged out of uh, the person leading the group, the tribe, off to battle. And they were called the leader, and inevitably they got killed. And some of them survived, and those that survived ended up becoming deified, like, wow, you must have some set of characteristics or traits that the rest of us don't have. So uh, they became like the god kings in an ancient world. And uh, this notion of leadership became something high and mighty and very powerful that only a select few people can actually do it. And uh, so this term leadership, we've started using it a lot over the last two decades, but, you know, our grandparents would never have spoken about leadership, certainly in the day-to-day activities of ordinary people. It was only for a select few, either running a country or running, uh, you know, some organization or whatever it might be. But now we kind of look at leadership as being an activity that takes place in all organizations, but our notion of it is still very ancient, that it's just about one individual with all this charisma capability and we end up depending somewhat excessively on them to be uh, the resolver of our problems when they are really our problems and we should not be passing it to one authority figure alone to uh, with the assumption that they can fix it because today's problems are too complex so you're saying it, it doesn't work it doesn't work in the past it worked to the degree that the world was pretty predictable and the problems were clear and the solutions were clear and so that dominant authority figure could basically tell people what to do. Today, in a globalized world, the problems we're dealing with are interdependent problems. So uh, the traditional notions of leadership and authority are insufficient um, for dealing with this kind of complexity. So we have to think about leadership differently. And we have to think about leadership being something other than authority so that uh, people without much formal authority can actually exercise leadership by contributing to the mobilization of people uh, to solve these difficult challenges. All right, you've got to help me understand this. So if, if that top-down authority figure works within a group, why mm-hmm. doesn't it work within interdependent groups? It works only within a group to the degree that the problems are very clear and life is pretty stable. And, uh, for example, I once lived with a tribal group in Borneo and studied them. And so to the degree that there were no changes in the forest, the traditional authority structure worked. But while I was there, kind of logging companies were moving in. The government kind of was giving these kind of vast tracts of land just to, for deforestation. These people were steadily being moved out of the forest. So that's what uh, we call an adaptive challenge. Now they're going to have to make some kind of adaptation. And... The traditional authority figure cannot fix a problem like that. It now becomes an interdependent problem, meaning that your authority is not recognized across these boundaries. You're going to have to cross boundaries, multiple boundaries, to mobilize people to tackle these challenges. So uh, this is kind of the, you know, whether it's a Barack Obama or whatever, you can't, top-down authority doesn't work. It's all about interdependence. And so it's a different way of thinking about leadership, authority, and problem-solving. Tell me more about what happened in Borneo next. How did they how did they deal with the logging companies? Oh, it was devastating. Uh, initially, uh, this is going back when I was a graduate student, so this was in the 80s. They uh, end up uh, protesting. We kind of organized them to protest against these logging companies and uh, ended up that I found out that the Minister uh, of the Environment owned, owned the biggest logging concession so there was so much corruption in the government Wow! and uh, very sad and you know people were killed and there were some battles along the way 
And uh, so we realized that this could not be a battle that's fought in the forest. You really had to mobilize the international community, the World Bank, the governments of you know, the region, and uh, the IMF, and ultimately was successful in getting Prince Philip, of all people, because he was head of the World Wildlife Fund, to come on down and to, to influence the process. And eventually the governments of, uh, of uh, Malaysia and Indonesia carved out these vast tracts of land that... Uh, were protected areas for the tribal peoples to live and for the uh, the forest to remain uh, protected. Hmm. Wow. So, all right, you t- spoke, spoke earlier about leaders of today need to have the capacity to mobilize people. Mm. So how do leaders of today effectively tap that capacity to mobilize people? Yeah, well, for one, they have to be multidimensional in style and practice and know kind of what kind of problem you're facing. And too often the leadership books that we see just have a set of, like, you know, 10 characteristics. If everybody can do those 10 characteristics, you know, somehow you're a leader. But uh, generally it doesn't work like that. So the first thing, you've got to diagnose what kind of challenge do you face. I've got, you know, talk about six kind of challenges, an activist challenge. That's a challenge where people are avoiding a piece of reality and you've got to give them like a zen slap wake them up to see that there is a problem mm-hmm. another challenge is a development challenge you've got to develop new capabilities that haven't existed before another uh, challenge is a transition challenge you've got to move people from one set of values to another another is a creative challenge you've got to stimulate the imagination to uh, solve a problem that nobody's ever experienced before another is a crisis challenge you've got to be able to uh, get people to kind of calm down, see what's been unresolved, and start working on that. Each one of those challenges requires a different set of capacities. So, you know, we're training people just kind of with one particular set, like creative vision, uh, creative vision, motivate the troops, hold them accountable. That's insufficient, and so uh, and it doesn't work. So you have to have a whole array of capabilities depending on the particular problems that you face. Hmm. Can you um, hmm. can you identify those people when you see them walk in a room? Those ones that can deal with the twenty fifteen problems. Uh, yeah, there's kind of a a, a mental maturity uh, of some sort. I mean, a higher level of cognitive capacity that they can hold kind of multiple ideas without falling back to the tribal mentality of black and white, us versus them. Uh, they can see kind of the perspectives of other people and uh, and the values underlying those perspectives and uh, and and they don't feel like they have to be the alpha of the group and usually those people who are excessively dominant are not the ones who are really good at the exercise of leadership because they make it too much about themselves and what they want at the expense of understanding the reality on the ground mm-hmm so is um is this a universal thing this you know kind of alpha approach to leadership did you run across this when you went to australia did you run it across it when you went to east timor i mean all these places is everybody doing this sort of the wrong yeah. way <laughs> it's almost a universal human default so uh, you know groups you know, when i mean groups i mean communities organizations tribes social systems uh all seem to have uh, an alpha, a dominant authority figure, and they look to them and they're dependent upon them 
uh, for uh, feeding their basic hungers, solving their basic problems, and providing some degree of guidance on on how to uh, you know find the basic resources to go about their activities. So all groups have that. Mm-hmm. Two four four seventeen seventy seven. That's our local number in Central Vermont. You can also reach us toll free at eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Dean Williams teaches down at the Harvard School, uh, the Kennedy School of Government, down at Harvard University, and he's written a number of books on leadership. Again, our number is two four four seventeen seventy seven. Toll free eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. How effective a leader do you think President Obama is? Uh. I think he's an amazing individual, and if you read uh, the books that he wrote before he became president, like Dreams of My Father, you see an individual that's multicultural, kind of very sophisticated in his reflective capacities to understand why he does what he does. Uh, so it's quite amazing from that point of view, and very talented at mobilizing people to follow him, namely to get elected, but he got elected on a mantra uh, that essentially espoused change, but it was an abstraction, and uh, and we didn't quite know well what is going to change here. And people could project onto him whatever they wanted, and so it's led to a lot of disappointment with from various factions that supported him uh, from the point of view. Well, why haven't uh, you delivered on you know this particular goal? Well, he you know, he never actually said he would do you know that. But uh, so change, kind of politicians kind of use these words words very loosely uh, in order to get people to follow them and not to necessarily to address a particular set of problems. And I recently met with uh, a businessman, uh, a very prominent businessman, an American businessman based in New York. And he said, listen, if Barack Obama called me, I probably wouldn't take the call. He was very disappointed that Obama had not reached out enough to the business community to include them in the problem-solving process to kind of figure out, you know, what are the economic changes that need to happen. Hmm. And uh, so his weakness has really been in his capacity or the lack of capacity to or to do this cross-boundary leadership work. And uh, admittedly, it's been very difficult. I mean, the, the resentment, the anger, the, the whatever that comes from many uh, ultra-conservative Republicans has just been unbelievable. They haven't given him much kind of space to provide much leadership. But also by nature, you know, he's not crossing the, the boundaries. And I remember Harry Reid said the same thing. I haven't heard from him. And that's the guy in his own party mm. that he ought to be working with. So he's inclined somewhat uh, like a, an academic, I guess, uh, to isolate himself, kind of work these problems in a way that Jimmy Carter did uh, on his own, think it through, or have this small kind of political uh, group around him. And uh, it's not so bad in his second term, but the first term he had his Chicago Mafia, Rahm Emanuel and the others around him. And they kind of always looked at the kind of the political aspects of problem solving. And his cabinet, these very kind of committed people who were there to kind of work on his agenda were like the second tier of problem solvers. Mm -hmm. So the political types were the ones who were running the show. So that was disappointing. So... I think he's done a pretty good job against all odds, uh, but if he had a better understanding of leadership, I think he could have done a much better job. Hmm. You know, one of the things, though, is you describe this. I'm thinking to myself, if you are one of these people that doesn't make quick, you know, decisive decisions and, and you're reaching out and trying to get everybody's opinion on or seeking different opinions on things, that others might interpret that as weakness. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so you, because of that, you probably need a combination of things that you need to be working on. And uh, so there ought to be some activities that I call kind of technical problems, where the problem's very clear, the solution's clear, and you can kind of move in, make the tough decisions and say, right, we're going to go in this direction. The other problems, uh, adaptive problems, they're more complex and they take time and people's mindsets values and priorities are going to have to change so uh, it's a combination of those factors and you better ensure that you're getting some quick wins so people can see okay mm. he's a decisive character you know that makes a lot of sense but uh, and then be working these other adaptive challenges over time and so he hasn't worked the adaptive challenges as well as he should have and this is often what happens with politicians or kind of the dominant authority figure they're really afraid to kind of let go of these challenges and think well it's my job to kind of figure out what the problem is and to resolve the problem and to right. fix yeah, everything yeah yeah precisely yeah. and ultimately they get into trouble uh when that's their case because one you know they don't have all the knowledge that's needed to bring resolution to these problems and you cannot resolve these problems unless you work through the values habits and priorities of people and that takes time mm-hmm. i would think um is there a difference between leadership that's demonstrated by men and women? Uh, to some degree, yes. The kind of the alpha, well, firstly, from uh, the, uh, let's look at authority. Males are inclined to be more aggressive with their authority. Uh, women will be more participatory and more concerned about kind of the quality of the relationships. Now, I know this almost stereotypes, but there's some kind of validity to those points of view. And uh, given kind of the role of testosterone in, in, in males. And so I find that lead the way I talk about leadership as a mobilization process of crossing these boundaries, women intuitively understand that better than men. Men, once again, let me generalize just simply to make the point, yeah. love the idea of kind of going forth to battle and kind of fighting for what they believe. Uh, rarely do you hear women talk in terms of fighting for what you believe. Uh, and so, you know, the man is, becomes a crusader, and, and if they happen to win that battle, you know, they think they're somewhat of a hero and, uh, and deserve to be called a leader. But uh, women generally don't think in those kind of terms. Of course, there's exceptions, wow. as with Maggie Thatcher, for example. I was going to say, you know, women, quote, not fighting for what they believe. Uh, mm. I don't know about that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I'm saying the terminology. Uh, of course, women, yeah, the, the, the women's movement in this, in this country has been extraordinary in fighting. But the notion of fighting, the notion of going to battle is more common with men and how they... Uh, construe the challenge in front of them and women are less inclined to say oh I'm going out to battle for what I'm wanting to do. In other words using uh, military metaphors as a description of the uh, the work of leadership. Got it. Alright, glad I asked. Um, so let's talk about something like global warming. So mm -hmm. how, what's an effective way of leadership on a complex issue like that? Particularly one where you know, we seem to run into this problem where everybody wants the other person to, to deal with it and that whole tragedy of the commons thing. Yeah, it, it's, once again, it's a very complex problem, and I certainly haven't got it figured out, you know, what to do or how to resolve it. But one of the things that needs to be handled is, once again, coming back to that notion of it's an interdependent problem. So a country, no country can resolve this on their own. Uh, 
And also, by virtue of it being an interdependent problem, we need to understand more, more about the reality on how that impacts each and every country. And how it's a systemic problem. And people don't know enough about the reality of it, or it's presented too much in political terms, and therefore the politicians are making decisions and doing what I said earlier. They're tribalizing. They're making decisions based on the interests of their tribe, often at the expense of other tribes. And so the leadership isn't really going to come from kind of the politicians on this. It's going to come from the civil society uh, and, uh, and journalists and scientists. And to the degree that these people can kind of get out of the university or get out of their immediate networks and start connecting with global groups and not simply being an activist to kind of demand change, but orchestrating the debates about the science, about the reality of what is happening and the interpretations of that reality. So uh, if it's an emotional conversation it won't get us too far but um, this is a case where you have to really deal with the the difficult kind of aspects of the science and translating it into ways that the ordinary person can understand and it has to become a global conversation rather than a, a political conversation all right but here's the problem i think at least that you know the politicians are the ones that are ultimately going to institute the policies that make the the whatever the people come up with yes but they're reacting to their constituents. And, uh, and politicians get away with what they do, or they act in ways in terms of supporting particular policy based on you know, who is supporting them or the votes that they receive. And so the ordinary person in the streets actually got a lot to say with who becomes their authority figures. Uh, the process of authorization comes from people. And people authorize these politicians, uh, their authority figures, to kind of represent them on issues. So if the ordinary person says, you know what, I don't like this, if there's enough of them who say, I don't like that, that can lead to the deauthorization of their authority figures. So ultimately, the work isn't going to be done so much with uh, uh, the politicians, uh, you know, because the puppeteers uh, uh, are behind them and they're not as powerful as we like to think they are ultimately the work is in the communities themselves we're talking with dean williams he teaches down at the uh, kennedy school down at harvard university you can join us at 244-1777 toll-free 877-291-8255 i just want to take a couple of minutes with you and have you talk about some of the work that you've done mm. you, originally um as uh, people might be able to tell you're from australia yep uh, you did some work with um, uh, the president of Madagascar. Mm. So what did, what did you do? How did you make um, improve the leadership there? Uh, Madagascar, when I went, first went there in 2002, was considered in one of the poorest countries on the planet and one of the most neglected countries on the planet. It had been exploited by pirates for the last, you know, 400 years. Uh, and uh, so it's a resource. It's the most biodiverse place on Earth. And uh, it's an island with 20 million people off the coast of Southern Africa. And uh, since their independence in 59, they've had basically socialists and communists running the country. And the country was driven into the ground. And in 2002, a civilian president, or a civilian became the president. And a pretty enlightened individual. And uh, for whatever reason, he invited me to come down and meet with him. And we spent 
a little bit of time together and he said, I want you to be my advisor, work with me to build my leadership capacity to tackle these challenges and build the leadership capacity in my cabinet. Mm. I stuck around for a month and did some my own analysis to kind of figure out one, you know, if, could I work in an environment like this and is he ready and willing to do it? And uh, sure enough, he was, and I ended up working there for about seven years. Uh, on and off, you know, running back here to the university from time to time. Wow. But the whole approach was to build the leadership capacity of the government uh, and the civil society to tackle these complex problems and challenges. And uh, and it worked, and great progress was made. And it was the first time in its history that they actually kind of created their own development strategy and then uh, and built the leadership capacity of the villages and women and the civil society and the government people and the cabinet to tackle these uh, complex challenges. But, uh, you know, it sounds like a happy ending. It wasn't a happy ending. It went extraordinarily well for so mm -hmm. long. It was really becoming the role model for development in Africa. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in 2009, there was a coup d'etat. And uh, the president was overthrown. Uh, I had to pack my bags and get the heck out of there really yeah. fast. And uh, this rogue faction in the military that didn't like what was happening said, listen, we've had enough. And they moved against the government. And, uh, and the country has been a mess ever since. Wow. Mid to call from Bristol. Wendy, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, good morning. Hi. love the um, thinking that you have on all these topics, and it's kind of hard to figure out where to um, address my question because I have a couple questions on different topics, so I'll just mm. put them both out there. Um, one involves the um, thoughts you had on President Obama's ability to be successful in relationship building and all, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm wondering what you think about the prospect of Bernie Sanders being successful if he were to become president. Actually, I'll have to apologize. I don't know enough about Bernie Sanders. Uh, beyond that, uh, I know he's a, a very independent thinker, and sometimes people like that uh, should never be the president. Uh, one, you know, then they're not going to receive the authorization of the country anyway. And to exercise leadership on many of these complex problems, you don't want to be the dominant authority figure. Bernie Sanders uh, is probably best where he's at. That's in exercising leadership from the sidelines rather than always from the center. Admittedly, mm -hmm. he is in the center of the problem-solving kind of institution for the country. But in the role he is in and being that kind of activist uh, is probably the best place to be. And we don't want to think of, you know, this person who does that job so well and he gets so much attention by virtue of that and it becomes a platform for him to kind of express his point of view. You don't want to kind of reward him for that and by making him the dominant authority figure where his hands are going to be tied and he's obligated to attend to all these other constituencies to maintain his authorization. That's not a good place to be. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we all love Bernie and his ideals, I think, but it's hard to imagine him being any more successful as a consensus builder in Washington. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the other question I have relates to your comments on climate change. Mm -hmm. And it's so frustrating to see that this issue has become a partisan issue in right. Washington and, you know, the representatives being uh, roughly 50-50 in Congress, in right. the Senate, but 
clearly the public is not anywhere near split on this. I think it's closer to 9 out of 10 Americans believe we have some role in contributing to climate change and need to do something about it. My question relates to how Republicans are ever going to be able to save face and come to an agreement. And it seems like there needs to be some opportunity created where they can be able to jump get over to the other side of this argument and do start taking action without totally losing face yeah i mean mean, that's a great question as i said before it's a complex challenge and the the kind of leadership that's needed is what i call activist leadership doesn't necessarily mean you are an activist in the traditional way we think about activists but it needs people like Bernie Sanders and others to kind of put the hard reality in front of people and to be very provocative in waking people up into what's going on. And what I see in that, to kind of get those Republicans on board, it's ultimately it's going to be the business community. And when the business community, and, and I've seen this, I've seen it in Madagascar, I've seen it in Europe in different places, when the business community says, you know what, uh, there, this is, there is a reality to uh, climate science. Uh, the, the globe is warming, and it's going to impact the bottom line of, of our businesses unless we make some, some changes. And business, for the most part, is going to be very short-term oriented, but there are a few enlightened people out there who do think a little bit in, the ter- in terms of the long-term sustainability of their businesses. And some are starting to see that. And so now that the business, more and more people in the business community, I'm talking in big oil, and mining, etc., uh, are starting to realize, you know what, it makes sense. It makes sense from two, point of view, uh, uh, two points of view. One is that there's a bottom line interest to attend to this. And the other thing is many of their consumers and uh, their clients and their customers are putting demands on them to change. You're seeing things like ethical investing movements and what have you. So there is a beginning of this process. And that inf- affects the Republican movement and the party in general as well. And so you are seeing people in the Republican Party saying, you know what, we should do something about it, but uh, for us it's the strategy on how we do it, and, uh, and that's up for debate. Well, if McDonald's can start introducing kale into their menu, I guess really anything can happen. Absolutely, and that doesn't come from an enlightened group of so-called leaders in McDonald's. It comes from uh, the consumer ultimately being an activist and putting pressure on uh, McDonald's to make these changes, and that's an expression of what I call leadership as well. Mm-hmm. Leading without authority. Yeah. Um, last question. Go back here. When you talked about when you were uh, when you were uh, in Madagascar, this idea of building leadership capacity. How, mm. You know, it's one of these phrases we hear, and everybody I can just hear. I can hear people's eyes rolling over. So, what what is that? How do you do that? What does it actually mean in English? Okay. What it means. Well, I don't know uh, uh, if you or your listeners uh, would remember Tito of Yugoslavia. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? so, you know, when I grew up, we all kind of heard about Tito and we thought, oh, what a magnificent job Tito was doing. And the moment he died, <laughs> uh, you know, Yugoslavia yeah. broke up and we went through that whole ugly period in the Balkans. Now, one of the reasons, and Tito is often hailed, oh, what an extraordinary leader. Right. Uh, He held the group together, but he didn't build the leadership capacity that when he was gone, there would be some sustainability to what he did. And as such, it broke apart. And you see this a lot in institutions. 
well, you get this outstanding individual doing great things, but they're not building the capacity of others to provide leadership. And so the moment they're gone, things fall apart. So the leadership capacity is helping people, one, understand what leadership is, realizing that they can provide leadership with or without authority, and that leadership is different from authority, and that there is such a thing as real leadership and there's counterfeit leadership. And counterfeit leadership gets people attending to a false set of issues that has nothing to do with making progress. Real leadership mobilizes people to face tough realities and actually make progress. And so there's ways of thinking about that. In this book uh, that I've just written on leadership for a fractured world, it's essentially saying the world is so divided and it's more fractured than it's ever been, even though we're in the age of globalization, because uh, the, the tribalizing behavior still persists and globalization is scary and people retreat back to the tribe as a form of identity. And even online, people kind of perpetuate online tribes uh, that add to the problem. Hmm. And so we now have to build this leadership capacity for what I'm saying, crossing boundaries. And there's also a couple of other capacities that need to be built. Not only this capacity to cross boundaries without being too ugly as you cross boundaries and mobilize people to tackle these challenges, because generally people cross boundaries in a bit of an imperialist or a colonialist or a crusader, and they try to impose their points of view. Mm -hmm. They would need new ways to kind of work with diverse groups. Uh, a second capacity is this capacity to bust boundaries. Some of these boundaries are so constraining and confining, they don't make any sense. Even the Republican Democrat, what's that whole boundary about? Uh, I don't know, and it doesn't seem to add to the problem-solving capacity of the country, and it perpetuates this kind of tribalism that exists, particularly as we have seen in the past week with a group of Republicans you know, unilaterally deciding that they're going to be the foreign policy uh, negotiators for the country. Mm -hmm. uh, that's fracturing behavior. That's not leadership by any means. And so the busting of the boundaries is busting up maladaptive practices that impede people's capacity to adapt to a changing world. There's another capacity that needs to, to be addressed, and that's this, what I call a transcending boundaries. That's create, creative problem solving. In the world today, that means harnessing the power of diversity, uh, using diversity, which is very difficult to do because we prefer people of our own kind than others. Right. But diversity has this tremendous kind of resource available for creative problem solving. And, uh, and the last capacity is this building of bridges between groups. And these groups could be a mystery to one another as between nations or even political parties. Uh, or there might be great enmity between groups, you know, like I've studied what's happened in Rwanda and things like that. And the, the notion of building bridges is bringing people together. And Richard Nixon did that uh, yeah. uh, in uh, 1970 with, uh, with Kissinger as they opened up China. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. But that's an expression of leadership. And the last point, Mark, even to do this kind of work and to build this capacity... Uh, you've got to expand the personal boundaries of the individual and to help them kind of get beyond the tribal mindset and to see the possibility that they can uh, contribute to the well-being of their institutions and organizations and the larger world, even though they may not have the formal authority to do that. Mm. Can I ask another couple of questions? Sure. So in terms of the United States government, I'm thinking as you were giving that last answer, so how can we... As citizens, if you agree with me that the government is kind of dysfunctional, which you yep, kind of described here. So what, what can we do as citizens to sort of break this logjam? A uh, couple of things. The moment you see any of the nonsense out there that perpetuates the problem, to take a stand against that nonsense. 
you know, what's an example of nonsense? Uh, uh, nonsense is kind of people, for example, questioning uh, whether the president uh, was born in this country or not. Uh, you know, this kind of perpetuates the divisions. What the Republicans, have, as I said, have done over the last week as it uh, pertains to uh, Iran mm -hmm. is perpetuating the fractures that exist. Mm -hmm. So when you see these fracture, fractures emerging, uh, to take a stand to be a unifier or at least to call attention to this dysfunctional counterproductive behavior uh, in a way that people can see it and see the consequences of this behavior. And another thing is really to kind of promote the bottom-up leadership that is so critical uh, and to let people know that their voice does matter and that they can contribute to the problem-solving in their communities. Vermont is a great illustration of that. I think there's a lot more citizen uh, participation at the grassroots in places like Vermont than there is in many other states in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and that's the strength of Bernie Sanders because he kind of represents that point of view as well. But, you know, I'm not here advocating, uh, you know, one party against another because the Republicans and different political parties obviously have a piece of the reality of these complex problems. And so I think people need to realize, yes, reality is complex. And these are complex systems. And each of these factions, we may not like them because their values may be different than ours, but we really need to develop this capacity for listening in a way that we've never really done before and listening to hear the value of what others have to say to find the connection. So no matter how adverse or, or nasty a group might be, uh, I can see that there is an opportunity to build some kind of a connection to start that problem-solving process. Mm. I, would, I would say in Vermont our effectiveness has less to do with Bernie Sanders than our smallness and our ability to, to connect easily with people. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, I like that. I prefer your answer. Uh, that uh, makes a lot of sense. So there's something about kind of the size of groups. But my point was that the Bernie Sanders of the world is kind of a reflection of the values that already exist in that system. Okay. So, and... Uh, You're saying and effect, the, not cause. Not, I'm yeah. sorry? You're saying effect, not cause. That is right. Yeah. That is right. And so... That is why kind of the grassroots and what's going on in the communities is so critical because the authority figures of any community or of a country really reflect what's happening in that community. So, you know, just in the news lately, there's been so much about Ferguson. Right. And that mirrors larger divisions in the country. It's not isolated and it shouldn't be treated as an isolated event. For us just listening to the news today, there's a demand for uh, kind of a whole breakup of the police department in that area. Yeah. But uh, that doesn't resolve the problem. It might kind of begin to address <laughs> in the context of right. Ferguson. Right. But it's a systemic problem uh, that needs to be addressed in the context of the country. And that's a problem that the civil society has to be very active in addressing. And it doesn't require blame per se, but really understanding the, the competing values in the system and how those values clash. Boy, the media seems to be a net loss on at least that story, and maybe in general, in, mm, this, uni absolutely. in this unifier divider thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. What What can we do about that? Anything? Oh, gosh. Uh, the media, I mean, you, meet, you see, you read, you listen to some outstanding journalists who do some great things. But once again, in the media, uh, it's also contributing to so many of the fractures that exist in the world uh, because it's an extension of that tribalizing behavior that I was uh, 
uh, talking about before. So, you know, the tribe doesn't like what another tribe is doing, so you create a media outlet to represent your tribe to go to battle against all these other tribes. And so uh, that perpetuates the division. So, you know, how do you kind of... Who, it's a whole way to think about journalism and, and getting attention. So yep. in a society where, uh, you know, the most popular forms of media are uh, kind of, you know, the tabloids, whether it's television or whether it's the printed uh, work or whether it's online, uh, it talks about kind of a mindset that's not expanding, but it's diminishing in people's capacity to deal with complex problems. So ultimately the media has to, or those in the media, you know, things like the New York Times, other forms of media, online media, really have to find ways to kind of, one, get people's interests and then work to uh, develop more critical thinking skills. Now I know, if, you know, that's kind of such abstract advice, but it's the best I can say, given the complexity of this kind of challenge. Mm -hmm. Truly the last question. So what, how do you decide, how do we decide what to work on, to be leaders on? Well, everyone can kind of, you know, we've got these really big challenges. You know, we're talking about global warming. And now there's obviously people who resonate to that challenge and say, you know what, I want to take that on. I want to do something about it. And some kind of want to exercise leadership on, you know, at, at the national level or the international level. And that's fantastic when people kind of take on those challenges. But uh, I talk about being a global change agent, and, uh, and that just doesn't mean that you're crisscrossing the globe dealing with these complex challenges, although via the Internet you can. Uh, but I'm talking about also kind of operating at the local level, whether it's in your school, uh, whether it's in your company, uh, whether it's in politics in your community. There's an opportunity to be a global change agent to tackle whatever problem that you think is critical for that community to address in order to make some kind of progress to make things better and if you've got a global perspective and you can see the systemic nature of these challenges and how what's going on in india or china or south america is actually impacting what's going on in brattleboro vermont for example mm -hmm. it's all connected in some way or another so having a global mindset is critical but then kind of choose a uh, kind of a set of problems that you're interested in and you want to provide leadership on and if you don't want to be the primary source of that leadership support others in their leadership you know get connected and realize you can do something about it and don't be so dependent on the boss the dominant authority figure or the politician or the president to kind of resolve these complex challenges that you should be an active participant in providing leadership to address yeah that's a what a, what a great message to end on have you read bill bryson's in a sunburned country by any chance I did, a long time ago, absolutely. Wasn't that one of the funniest darn books you've ever read in your life? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he was so uh, insightful, and it was a great book to read. So even being from Australia, because the book's about Australia, uh, I mean, it wasn't somehow uh, insulting or overgeneralizing or anything? There was some of that there, and, you know, and you, it's an initial reaction of anyone. The moment somebody writes a book about right. you, you say, well, you know, he got that wrong, he got that wrong, what does he know? People kind of don't like that, but once you get beyond that, you say, my boy, he's, he's actually pretty insightful, and he's saying things about Australians that we ourselves either took for granted or you kind of failed to see because you kind of cannot get behind your own eyeballs. And, and it's great to hear kind of the perspective of others, and so it's a very rich kind of perspective and very articulate and very insightful as it pertains to Australians and culture and history. It was great. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can get some insight when you have somebody from outside your tribe examining <laughs> your tribe. 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It doesn't always work, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, some of that is needed. And uh, it's like in my class uh, next week, you know, we're dealing with who are we as, uh, as Americans. We're looking at America as a culture and uh, as a culture, as a mix of cultures. Oh, but uh, there's kind of all these identity issues. And, uh, and uh, it's really and half my class are outsiders outside of the United States. But their perspective on America, American culture and American issues is very different from the regular American kids. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're kind of caught up in these issues, it's very difficult to have perspective or you've got a particular perspective. But the outsider always seems to bring a unique perspective that at least should be entertained. Well, and when their view, though, is through the lens of TV and they all think that America's like Dallas, the TV show, you know, it's... Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. As a kid, well, I kind of grew up with uh, things like uh, Rin Tin Tin uh -huh. uh, and Lassie uh, and Disneyland. Uh, we only had kind of two TV stations and we had those American channels. So when I first came, uh, I thought it was a bit like that. I was a bit shocked and overwhelmed by what I saw and... Uh, and uh, indeed, America is, is, is very different than the, the popular uh, media portrays. And uh, so it's a strength, right? Your media kind of spreads out all around the world. Uh, but it's not always uh, kind of the, the best of America. Mm, yeah. uh, I had some of my best experiences just kind of traveling around and seeing what you would never see in any TV show or movie, yeah. uh, which never gets captured. Hey, thanks for your time this morning. Good luck in your work. Thanks so much. I appreciated talking to you and some of your guests. That was great. Dean Williams teaches down at the Kennedy School, which is affiliated with Harvard University. He teaches courses on leadership, and he's also the author of a number of books on the topic, including his most recent one, Leadership for a Fractured World. We'll take a quick break. Back after this. When I first started in the car business, customers would complain that buying a used car was too much work. They could look in the paper.